Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 27, The Real You. Today's proverb comes from William Shakespeare. I'll read it twice. All the world's a stage and all the men and women, merely players. Once more, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women, merely players. If the world is a stage, and all the men and women merely players, then everyone you know is actually someone else. Everyone's putting on a show. Everyone is faking it. Everyone is playing a part written by someone else. That, at least, is one way of understanding the quote. It's a bit glum. It's a bit dour. You can't really ever know anyone. Or everyone's a liar. We all have secret motivations. The characters that we play, we choose for the advantage that they confer on us. And there is, within the machine of human characters, a smaller, more subtle, more devious actor. And that actor is the real man, and you can never really get at him. 
This is the glum way of reading the quote. This is the glum way of understanding it. I don't think that this reading of the quote is necessary. I don't think that it's right. I do believe that there's another way of reading it. And the quote is not optimistic, I would say. But the quote can be understood in a wistful and hopeful sort of way. I do believe that there is real Christian hope that underwrites this quote. We'll have to come back to that in a little bit. I'd like to say something to begin with about the way that we understand the human person or how we understand the self. The self is a great modern problem, a great modern conundrum. In the 20th century, well, maybe a little before the 20th century, but certainly the self was one of the great preoccupations of the 20th century. And this preoccupation was several hundred years in the making. According to Harold Bloom, Shakespeare plays a big part in creating the modern vision of the self. But one of the most famous and significant theorists of the self, a theorist who many modern people believe, whether they know it or not, or whether they've read him or not, one of the most famous and significant modern formulations of the self is postulated by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And I doubt that Rousseau thought of himself as a theorist of the self, but in being the man who coordinated or, or formulated the modern philosophy of democracy, Rousseau had to say a lot about the individual, the human person, the self. In the social contract, Rousseau describes, in a certain passage in the middle of the book, the social conditions which are necessary in order for a democracy to thrive. And what he has to say about the thriving democracy is, if you want to look at it in a kind sort of way, it's paradoxical. If you want to take a more realistic approach, it is just entirely self-contradictory. Because Rousseau says in order for a democracy to thrive, you need the public to have informed opinions, but you also need every man to vote according to what he himself personally believes to be right. Now, if you've read the Federalist Papers, and if you're familiar with the arguments back and forth about democracy in the earliest days of American history, you know that the Federalist was interested in solving the problem of factionalism. How do you solve the problem of factionalism? And factionalism, simply put, uh, occurs in a democracy when a certain percentage, 51% of uh, the voters, realize that there's something that binds them together that might allow them to legally exploit 
a minority. So in a democracy, say that 52% of the populace realizes that they have brown eyes. They can draft a law that would require people with blue eyes to pay a higher share of taxes. And it could be all decided in a legal, uh, constitutional sort of way. But as the founders of this country said, that's a, that's a faction. It's not uh, according to the spirit of democracy. Now, what Rousseau says is that in order for a democracy to thrive and in order to avoid the problems of a faction, you need all the voters to be informed, but you also need them to not vote, as he puts it, according to sectional associations. People need to vote not according to their kind. Which means, for instance, if you have a black Catholic plumber who's going to vote, the black Catholic plumber cannot vote as a black man, he cannot vote as a Catholic, and he cannot vote as a plumber. These are all associations that he has with sections of society. He's got to vote according to what he, for himself, according to his unique, unrepeatable will, believes to be best. And so the fact that he's black cannot inform how he votes, neither can the fact that he's a Catholic or a plumber or any other sectional association you might name, any other association he has with others. He must vote according to his unique self. Now, this, of course, poses uh, some interesting problems for the voter. Because in order to vote according to your unique self, you first have to figure out what it is and where it is. And the search for self-knowledge is one of the most ancient searches there is, right? Know thyself is the key to wisdom. But knowing yourself is a lifelong project. That's the essence of wisdom. And it's, it's most likely the case that the search to know yourself never really terminates in this life. But to assume that a man should not vote according to sectional associations is to assume that for the black Catholic plumber, being black, being Catholic, and being a plumber don't really affect him. They're not really a part of who he is. They're merely accidents. No real identity, according to Rousseau, is shared. And so there is this self. There is this person inside a man that controls the facade. But in order to be truly happy, the facade must be absorbed into this smaller, truer self. The only real you cannot have anything in common with anyone else. Because as soon as you have something in common with someone else, you have a sectional association. You have something that detracts from your unique personhood. 
The search for your real self often seems to be a waste of time. If you ever pay attention to people who claim, I need to find myself, and people who say, I need to lose myself, and people who say, I just need to be myself, they're all often doing the same thing. They're often going to Coachella or they're going to church. I mean, imagine for a moment three people who go to some concert out in the middle of the desert. Something like Burning Man, maybe. Three people dancing to techno music at two in the morning, surrounded by strangers in a dust bowl. And one of them says, I came here to be myself. And another says, I came here to lose myself. When the other person says, I came here to find myself, they all do the same thing. They're all after the same thing. No one knows whether the self is coming or going or staying put. I can also imagine a certain kind of person, perhaps even a very shallow person, making the same sorts of claims about why he goes to church. I go to church to find myself. Or I go to church to lose myself. Or I go to church to be myself. I can easily imagine church being any of those things to to the same sort of person. How do you know whether you've found yourself or lost yourself? Who's doing the losing? Who's doing the finding? As I said towards the beginning of the show... Though, I don't believe that this quote is glum and dour and cynical and skeptical of human nature. I do believe that there is a kinder, more generous reading of this quote. So, I should start the defense of a a sunnier interpretation of this quote by saying that it's true that you never really know what someone else is thinking. And I feel as though this is a theme in proverbial. This is a subject that's come up a number of times. It often comes up in my classes as well. We have all lied to other people often enough and persuaded other people of our lies that we also recognize from time to time that people could be lying to us. We have all carried on friendships with people that we can't stand. And we have wondered from time to time which of our friends are carrying on friendships with us, though they can't stand us. There is the privacy of a man's own being. There is the ultimate autonomy of his will. There is the point at which every human being is separated by an ontological horizon from his creator. You are the creature, God is the creator, and there is a boundary between the creator and the creature which cannot be bridged without destroying the creature or destroying the creator. They must ultimately remain separate. Though the creature depends on the creator, 
the creature is not God. And whatever it is that makes a man not God is his autonomy, is his personhood. Your personhood is simply another way of saying that you're not God. Now, if a human being has autonomy and personhood in such a way that he's simply not God, then one person is also not another person. My wife is not me. I am not her. And there is this boundary, this ontological boundary that separates us. It is like the ontological boundary that separates her from God, but that's a sort of ultimate boundary. And the boundary that separates myself and my wife or me and my any friend that I have is a much smaller boundary. Now, I'm not saying that everyone is fundamentally alone because God is at all times in all places filling all things, which means that God also fills the emptiness between or God fills the boundary between us and himself, as David Hart says somewhere. That God dwells in unapproachable light and yet God also fills the space that makes him unapproachable. And that's a terrifying paradox or a wonderful paradox. So I don't mean in saying that a man has autonomy, that that autonomy cannot be filled with love, that it cannot be filled with communion, and that communion bridges the autonomy that separates man from man and man from God. Whereas hatred, of course, um, creates an even deeper boundary. But within the privacy of your own heart, and, you, and we all know this to be true, there are thoughts that are yours to which only you are privy to, and you cannot or do not share them with other people. Now, a great rhetor or a great intellectual or just a very honest person is capable of giving words to most of his thoughts, of expressing with words his feelings, his intellection, and so forth. But words are always signs that point back to thought. And there is some separation there, where sign and signified are two separate things. And we know this whenever we feel at a loss for words, or when words fail us, or when the words come out wrong, or when we misspeak. We always remember that no matter how accurately we express ourselves, it is very hard to say exactly what you mean. And until we have faces, Lewis suggests that people will only really say what they mean when their lives are over. It's only when your life on earth has come to an end that you can really say what you mean. And until then, we are, to a certain extent, trying to decide what to say, trying to decide what we mean. And finally, that word will be drawn out of us. I think that's Lewis's expression when 
Orwell goes to the judgment, and she talks about the gods drawing out the word that has been in the center of your being your whole life, but which you never had the ability to express. Now, the quote, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players, doesn't mean everyone's faking it, because an actor's not faking it. An actor's not being false. An actor is playing a role. And what's often the case with a character, or I think I brought this up several shows back with a, with a portrait, Roger Scruton makes the claim that a, that a portrait is more real than reality itself because a portrait can layer images on top of one another. There are things that a man can express when he's portrayed with paint that he cannot portray with his face. It's possible to draw many feelings out of a man's face in portrait that he could not convey simultaneously. And so a portrait is like many layers of a man's face um, on top of one another, overlaid images. And the same is true with a character in a play or a novel. Characters in novels and plays don't talk like real people talk. They talk in a state of heightened reality, curated and heightened reality. And heightened reality is not false. Den you reality is the sort of thing that you can densely pack. That's what beauty is. Beauty is densely packed reality. Something that's beautiful has a surfeit of being. Beauty is 20 pounds of reality stuffed in a 10-pound sack. It's an overflowingness. It's a too-muchness, a gratuity of being. Less being would have been acceptable. But beauty is the overflow. And this is what fiction is in a similar sort of way. Fiction or a portrait, um, densely pack reality, they, they, they condense reality. And when you encounter a character in a play or in a novel or a character in a portrait, the longer you look at that character, the more the reality that has been Forced together, squashed together, for lack of a better word, comes slowly expands back to its proper shape. And that's why things that are very beautiful change over the course of time. They seem different to us when, they come, when we come back to them because the reality of those things has expanded in our heart. Uh, this is, maybe seem like a very crude analogy, but it's, I mean, it's a little bit like a Nerf ball. Like you take a Nerf ball and you can kind of pack it down to a quarter of its size. And then when you set it in front of somebody, it goes back to its original shape, which is much bigger. Fiction is that way. Beauty is that way. It's the, it's the compacted version that expands when we view it. Now, what this means is that you're better off playing a character, then not. 
You're better off choosing a noble role to play than trying to be yourself. Allow the power of yourself, of your unique person, to direct itself at some worthy goal. Imagine for a moment, I mean, the, the person who's always looking to be themselves or to find themselves is like someone who wanders onto a, a stage where a beautiful play is taking place and keeps asking everybody, what are you doing here? And all the actors who have memorized these beautiful speeches and these profound characters are, are telling this person, you need to choose a role or get off the stage and just watch. But, but I mean, you can, imagine, uh, you can imagine what it would be like if there were a, you know, a production of As You Like It and somebody from the audience just started wandering around the stage saying to all the actors, who should I be? Maybe I'll be a new character. Shut up. Get off. We're trying to do something profound here. And you're worried mainly about yourself. We have all studied something great. That's what we're doing. You're not fit for the stage until you know what character you're going to play. Now, it's, it's true as Beatrice says in the comedy, if the will won't will, nothing can force it. Which means that there is within you something unrepeatable, something personal, something autonomous, something unrepeatable. The part of you, that the, the aspect of you, the you that ultimately goes to heaven or hell. That entirely unique you is choosing a character. You, from the complete isolation of your personhood, do choose a character to play. And you might choose well or you might choose poorly. Now, oftentimes what we want from others, what we want from our friends and from our spouses, is we don't want to know the character that they've chosen to play. We want to try to get at that unrepeatable, completely autonomous chooser of characters that sits at the center of a man's soul. Now, if there is something glum, I'm not, I don't want to say glum, I just want to say wistful about this quote. It's this, you can't know the chooser of the role in this life. You can't know it for certain. It will always be beyond you. No matter how well you think you know your wife, there is something about her which is beyond your comprehension. She is mother, lover, friend, etc. But there's also something beyond all those parts that she plays, characters that she plays, that you can't have access to. Only God has access and knowledge of the hidden person, the one that chooses the role of mother to children, lover to husband, suppliant to the Lord, etc. At least in this life, 
In this life, you have to content yourself with the hope of knowing people as God knows them in the next life. And that to know God is to know man as well. And that when we know God, because we see him as he is, it will only be then that we finally get to know everyone that we've met in this world. And until then, there will always be something beyond our comprehension in the character and personhood of those around us. And we might, we might look forward to the day when we can really know them. This is one of those things that I just I daydream about sometimes, not, not really in a romantic way, but the kind of thought that just suddenly fills my head on odd occasions. And that's that if I go to heaven, I might in heaven finally understand my wife. Because I don't now. I have beliefs about her. I know facts about her. I love her. But there is something beyond my comprehension about her. And that's true both because of who she is, but also because of what she is. A woman, a human being, another person. And I kind of dream of this moment of meeting her as though for the first time on the other side. And that does give me hope. It makes this life a little anxious to know that I don't know her, apart from the characters that she plays. But it makes me look forward to the moment when I can know her. And it also allows me to judge her more leniently. Because I get to tell myself, and it's true, and it's not some kind of false leniency, but I do get to tell myself, when pressed to my limits, at the end of the day, at the end of it all, you don't know her. You know some things about her. You know the characters she's chosen to play. And that suggests something about her hidden person. So I'm not entirely ignorant of the hidden, unique, unrepeatable, autonomous soul of my wife, but I don't know it all, obviously. But I look forward to the day when I will. I look forward to knowing and seeing God as he is. And in God, fulfilling all the promises of my wife's person in the resurrection and encountering her there in her final and ultimate state.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.